Nestled in the heart of Notting Hill, Number 10 Rillington Place held secrets that defied imagination. Behind closed doors, a macabre drama unfolded, revealing a sinister figure whose desires led him down a path of darkness and depravity. As each layer of deception was peeled away, a disturbing tapestry emerged, woven with the lives of unsuspecting victims and the twisted mind of a man known as John Christie. Welcome back to the Wicked Pod. Today, we are unveiling the twisted secrets of Number 10 Rillington Place and reveal the disturbing tale of John Christie's deadly obsessions. The climax of what has been called the greatest murder mystery of all time developed on the afternoon of March 24, 1953 at a tiny, shabby house in London's Notting Hill area. A Jamaican tenant named Beresford Brown was preparing to redecorate the ground floor kitchen and was looking for a place where he could put up a shelf. When he tapped the wall in the corner, it sounded hollow, and he realized that he was looking at a cupboard that had been covered over with wallpaper. He peeled back a strip of wallpaper from the corner and discovered a hole in the door. He switched on a torch and peeped through and what he saw was unmistakably the back of a naked woman who seemed to be bending forward with her head between her knees, as if being sick. It explained the offensive smell in the kitchen, not unlike that of a dead rat. The police were there within minutes, so was the pathologist Dr. Francis Camps. The cupboard door was opened, and the seated body was seen to be supported by a piece of blanket which was knotted to her brassiere. The other end of the blanket was part of the covering of a tall object leaning against the wall. A closer look revealed that this was another body. And beyond it, against the back of the cupboard which had obviously been a coal cellar, there was yet another object that looked ominously like an upright body. The first corpse proved to be that of a rather pretty young woman with a mark around her throat indicating that she had been strangled to death, a stalactite of mold was growing out of her nose. Medical examination showed she had been dead about a month. Bubbling from her vagina was a large quantity of sperm about 5 cubic centimeters suggesting that her killer had either had a tremendous orgasm or had raped her more than once. The second body also proved to be that of a young woman, Wearing only a cardigan and vest, she too had been raped and strangled. The body had been placed in the cupboard upside down. Medical examination showed that she had been in the cupboard about two months. Body three was again of a young woman, upside down and wrapped in a blanket. And, as in the case of body two, a piece of cloth had been placed between the legs in the form of a diaper. She was wearing only a pink silk slip and bra, with two vests. She was six months pregnant and had been in the cupboard from two to three months. These were not the only remains found at Number 10 Rillington Place. Beneath the floorboards in the front room, there was another naked body wrapped in a blanket. This proved to be a middle-aged woman who had been dead for between three and four months. Between her legs, there was also a piece of silk in the position of a diaper. A search of the garden revealed that a bone propping up a fence was a human femur. 
digging revealed bones belonging to two more female bodies. There was no problem identifying the killer. He was John Reginald Halliday Christie, who had lived in the ground floor flat for the past 15 years and had had the exclusive use of the garden. Christie was described as a tall, thin, bespectacled man with a bald head. The corpse under the floorboards was that of his 54-year-old wife, Ethel. Christie had left the flat four days earlier, subletting it to a couple named Riley, from whom he took rent of eight pounds. That same evening, the Jamaican landlord, Charles Brown, had arrived and found the Rylas in occupation. He had ordered them to leave the following morning since Christie had no right to sublet the flat. Now the hunt was on for Christie, the police naturally feared he might commit more sex murders. One week later, on March 31, 1953, a police constable near Putney Bridge thought he recognized a man staring gloomily into the water and asked him if he was Christie. The man admitted it quietly and accompanied P.C. Ledger to the station. He seemed relieved it was over. The finding of the bodies brought to mind another tragedy that had occurred in the same house five years earlier. On December 2, 1949, the police had found the bodies of 20-year-old Beryl Evans and her one-year-old daughter, Geraldine, in the wash house outside the back door. The husband, an illiterate laborer named Timothy Evans, had been charged with both murders and hanged. Now everyone was asking the question, was Christie the killer of Beryl and Geraldine Evans? Christie himself answered part of this question a few weeks later when he confessed to strangling Beryl Evans with a stocking. He claimed she had asked him to help her commit suicide. But Christie strongly denied murdering the baby Geraldine. Reg Christie, as he was known, was born in Yorkshire in April 1898, the son of a carpet designer who bullied and ill-treated his family. He was a weak child who was regarded as a sissy by his schoolfellows. He was often ill and frequently in trouble with the police for minor offenses. He was the unlucky type who always seemed to get caught. Christie continued to be a petty criminal. In 1921, he was a postman, and people complained that letters and postal orders failed to arrive. Investigation revealed that Christie had been stealing them, and he was sentenced to three months in jail. In 1923, he was put on probation for obtaining money by false pretenses. In 1924, he was sentenced to nine months for theft. This was too much for Ethel, and she left him. He moved to London and settled down with another woman whom he met on a coach going to Margate. But Christie's dislike of work led to quarrels, and after one of these, he hit her with a cricket bat, almost shattering her skull. For this, he was sentenced to six months for malicious wounding. And in 1933, he received another three months for stealing the car of a priest who had befriended him. He wrote to Ethel in Sheffield, asking her to come and visit him in prison. When he came out, they again moved in together. Their new home was the small, shabby house at the end of a cul-de-sac called Rillington Place. The rent was 12 shillings and 9 pence a week. In September 1939, 
Christie became a war reserve policeman, and he became unpopular in the area for his bullying and officious behavior. He loved to run in people for minor blackout infringements. During this period, Ethel often went to visit her family in Sheffield, and in 1943, Christie began to have an affair with a young woman from the Harrow Road Police Station. Her husband, a soldier, heard about it and went and caught them together at Rillington Place. He beat Christie up and later divorced his wife, citing Christie as correspondent. It may have been this humiliation that led to Christie's first murder. Sometime soon after the divorce scandal, Christie picked up a young Austrian prostitute named Ruth First. She had been stranded in England by the war and took her back to Rillington Place. Ethel was in Sheffield. As they had sex, he strangled her with a piece of rope. The fact that he used rope suggests that the murder was premeditated. He probably decided to kill her while she undressed. But why? The answer was supplied by Dr. Francis Camps, the pathologist on the case. Camps said that one of the odd things about the case that never came out in court was that he found dried sperm in the seams of Christie's shoes. For Camps, this showed clearly that Christie had masturbated as he stood over a corpse. And this, in turn, indicates that Christie had to see the corpse to achieve maximum stimulation. In short, he was a necrophile. In fact, he admitted later that the most overwhelming emotional experience of his life was to see the corpse of his grandfather when he was eight years old. Christie was almost certainly lying when he said he had normal intercourse with Ruth first. In his teens, Christie was the laughingstock of the local youths because he was reputed to be impotent. After a humiliating experience with a local girl, he became known as Reggie No Dick and Can't Do It Christie. With shy, passive women, like Ethel, he could achieve intercourse, although he claims that they had been married for two years before they had sex. The same is probably true of the soldier's wife with whom he had an affair. But with most women, he was impotent unless they were unconscious or dead. So when Ruth first came back to his flat, he probably prepared a piece of strangling rope, with a knot at either end, and placed it under the pillow, intending to kill her and make sexual use of the corpse until Ethel came back. In fact, he was interrupted. A telegram arrived shortly after the murder, announcing her return. He had to conceal the body hastily under the floorboards and bury it in the garden at the first opportunity. Now he had killed a woman, the aching sense of inferiority brought to a head by the beating from the angry soldier was assuaged. In December 1943, temptation came his way again. Now no longer a policeman, he worked for a firm called Ultra Radio and met a plump, attractive little woman called Muriel Eady. She told him she suffered from Qatar, and Christie had an idea. He told her he had a cure for Qatar and invited her back to Rillington Place while Ethel was away. The cure, he said, was to lean over a bowl of steaming friar's balsam with a cloth over the head to keep in the steam. Christie ran a rubber pipe from the gas tap and inserted it under the cloth. Muriel Eady passed out peacefully.
Trembling with excitement, Christy moved her onto the bed, removed her clothes, and raped her. Looking at the body, he later described how he experienced the sense of exquisite peace. I had no regrets. Muriel Edie also found her way into the garden. Six years passed before he killed again, and it is possible a murder was unpremeditated. Timothy and Beryl Evans had moved into the upstairs flat, but they quarreled a great deal. One of the quarrels was about a blonde girl who had moved in with them. The girl had to leave. In one of his confessions, Christie claimed that he strangled Mrs. Evans at her own request because she wanted to die. There may be an element of truth in this. But what Christie failed to mention is that Beryl Evans had again discovered herself to be pregnant and wanted an abortion. Christie, who loved to swagger, had told Timothy Evans that he had once studied to be a doctor. And Evans asked Christie if he could perform an abortion. What happened next is a matter of conjecture, but the view of Ludovic Kennedy, in his book Ten Rillington Place, is well argued. Christy went into the room where Beryl Evans was waiting for him. She removed her knickers and lay down with her legs apart. Christy inserted a finger, or perhaps a spoon, then was overcome with sexual desire and tried to climb on her. Beryl struggled, Christy strangled her and then raped her. When Timothy Evans came home, Christy told him that his wife had died as a result of the abortion and that he, Evans, would almost certainly be blamed. Evans, a man of subnormal intelligence, panicked. He allowed Christy to do his thinking for him. And what Christy apparently advised was that the baby should be looked after by some people in Acton, and Evans should vanish. Evans did vanish, to Merthyr Vale in Wales, and spent ten days with an aunt and uncle. Then he decided to go back to London, to give himself up to the police. They came and found the bodies in the wash house, and Evans was charged with murder. And here we encounter the first mystery of the case. Evans then made a full confession to murdering his wife and baby by strangulation. This was admittedly his second confession. In the first, he had stated that Beryl had died as a result of an abortion performed by Christie. But he repeated his confession to murdering his wife and child the following day. So although he withdrew this second confession a fortnight later, the police had no reason to believe his assertion that the real killer was Christie. At the trial, Christie appeared as a witness for the prosecution, and Evans was hanged on March 9, 1950. Ethel Christie had a strong suspicion, amounting to a certainty, that her husband was somehow involved in the murders. She had noticed his extreme nervousness at the time. She confided her belief to a neighbor, and when Christie came in and caught them discussing the case, he flew into a rage. This could explain why, on December 14, 1952, he strangled her in bed. It could also have been that he experienced a compulsion to commit more sex crimes, and Ethel stood in the way. Christie told her family in Sheffield that she was unable to write because she had rheumatism in her fingers. In mid-January 1953, 
Christie picked up a prostitute called Kathleen Maloney in a pub in Paddington and invited her back to his flat. As she sat in a deck chair in the kitchen, he placed the gas pipe under the chair. She was too drunk to notice. When she was unconscious, he raped her and put her in the cupboard. The next victim, Rita Nelson, was six months pregnant. Christie may have lured her back with the offer of an abortion. She also ended in the cupboard. About a month later, Christie met a girl called Hector Ina McLennan, who told him she was looking for a flat. She and her boyfriend actually spent three nights in Christie's flat, now devoid of furniture. Christie had sold it. On March 5th, Hector Ina made the mistake of going back to the flat alone. She grew nervous when she saw Christie toying with a gas pipe and tried to leave. Christie killed her and raped her. When her boyfriend came to inquire about her, she was in the cupboard, and Christie claimed not to have seen her. As Christie gave him tea, the boyfriend noticed a very nasty smell but had no suspicion he was sitting within feet of Hectorina's corpse. This was Christie's last murder. Two weeks later, he left Rillington Place and wandered around aimlessly, sleeping in cheap lodgings and spending the days in cafes until he was arrested. He confessed to all the murders of women, usually insisting that it was they who made the advances. He was executed on July 15, 1953. The major mystery remains, was Timothy Evans innocent? Long after his death, he was officially absolved of all responsibility and guilt, yet that leaves some major questions unanswered. For example, why did he confess to the murders? Ludovic Kennedy, in 10 Rillington Place, takes the view that Evans was innocent of both murders. He confessed, says Kennedy, out of misery and confusion. But this is almost impossible. Evans had had 10 days in Wales to think things over. There is no earthly reason why he should have confessed to strangling Beryl, after a quarrel, and then Geraldine. Kennedy argues that he was too fond of both. In The Two Stranglers of Rillington Place, Rupert Furnow takes the opposite view. He points out that Beryl and Timothy Evans often quarreled violently, and that nothing was more likely than that Evans would kill Beryl in a rage. He argues closely and convincingly and is, on the whole, more plausible than Kennedy. And he believes that it was Christie who murdered the baby. But this still leaves a major mystery. Why, in that case, did Evans also confess to murdering Geraldine? The answer is surely supplied by a curious piece of evidence from another murderer, Donald Hume, who was in prison at the same time as Evans, on a charge of murdering a man named Stanley Setti and throwing pieces of his body out of an airplane. Evans asked Hume's advice, and when Hume asked, did you kill your wife? Evans replied, no, Christie murdered her. Here he could well have been lying for by now his defense was that Christie had killed her in the course of an abortion. But when Hume asked if he killed the baby, Evans made the surprising statement that Christie had strangled Geraldine while he, Evans, watched. He said that the baby's crying had got on his nerves. This rings true. 
Evans was in a frantic state, and he could well have stood by while Christie killed Geraldine. In doing so, he had become, in effect, her killer, so his confession to murdering her was not far short of the truth. Guilt probably increased his sense of being her murderer. And this, I would argue, is almost certainly the answer to the riddle. There were two stranglers of Rillington Place. And baby Geraldine was, in a sense, killed by both of them. As an interesting footnote to this case, Donald Hume was acquitted of the murder of Stanley Setti. He went to Switzerland, became a bank robber, and in 1958 shot a taxi driver in the course of escaping from a bank. For this murder, he was sentenced to hard labor for life. <laughs>